No, you tell it. No, you. I'm not telling it. You should totally tell it. <laughs> well, you should tell it. No, you tell it. No, You Tell It is a series that switches up the storytelling. So each performer writes a true life tale and then, switching with a partner, performs the other person's story, giving everyone involved the chance to share their own stories and experience someone else's. After years of staying on the fringes, Erica Iverson finds community and comfort through the intricate act of folding paper cranes in Union Square. Kicking off the second half of our migration show, Ken Crossland reads... September 18th, 2001, or How I Became a New Yorker. It's September 2002, and I'm heading north in a cab. I'm late for work, again. The cab driver is an older man with a consonant-filled Eastern European name, a mop of white hair, and slightly creepy, longish fingernails. I'm in a bit of a pissy mood because I'm going to be late again, but the cab driver wants to make conversation. He says, You're from New York? Uh, no, I say. I'm originally from Wyoming. I knew it! I knew there was something, well, kind of wholesome about you. Uh, thanks. But do you consider yourself a New Yorker? Well, more in the last year or so, I guess. How long you been here? Eight years. Oh, then you're a New Yorker, he says. Seven years or more. You're a New Yorker. He seemed very sure about it. At the end of January in 2001, I was dumped by the person I thought I was going to spend the rest of my life with. Looking back, I realized that he'd been pulling away from me for some time. You know that thing where your boyfriend is just a little bit too mean to you? So you feel like you ought to break up with him, but you don't want to break up with him? Until you figure out that what he really wants is for you to do the hard part and break up with him so he doesn't have to be the bad guy? <laughs> yeah, that thing. We've been long distance for a long time, and the distances just kept getting longer. Ending with him taking a one-semester adjunct teaching job back in our hometown in Wyoming. He confided in me that he had become too afraid to fly, and that he just kept thinking about the plane going down in flames. I kept thinking about how afraid of everything I was now. And then it was February. Every goddamn Cupid and red heart in the window of every Dwayne Reed in New York felt like a punch in the gut. That is a lie, they said to me, in their little squeaky cartoon Cupid voices. People will betray you. Your dreams are dead. <laughs> He'd seen me through a period of depression, and although I didn't want to admit it at the time, I can see that I'd put terrible kind of responsibility and pressure on him. I'd hung the whole idea of my future on him, on the idea of being his partner. While I love many things about New York, I kept expecting to have to move, thinking I was terribly generous in offering to go wherever he got a job. Now I had to figure out what to do on my own. In the second week of September 2001, I forked over a chunk of change and ventured west to take a three-day workshop with a master clown teacher from France and the Cirque du Soleil in Las Vegas. It's not as strange as it sounds. <laughs> when you get an MFA in experimental theater, you're basically required to do stuff like that. <laughs> Tuesday the 11th was our last day of class, but my father woke me up early that morning with a phone call to my hotel room. You better turn on the television. As if wearing a red nose while playing tag and Simon Says with the most athletically fit people I'd ever seen hadn't been surreal enough, half of us were from New York, or had lived there at one time. 
We were all in tears. But I quickly pointed out that if I was going to have to do anything that day, I might as well try to make people laugh. It took me most of a week to get home. I was at once relieved and strangely sad that I hadn't been in New York City. I had heard stories from friends of mine who had seen terrible things that morning. It's not that I wanted to witness them, but there was a feeling like someone you loved had died and you had missed the funeral. My stepmother was surprised that I wanted to go back, and I was surprised at the thought that I would just, what, give up? It's not going to be the same, she said. I was living on East 24th Street, right near the 69th Regiment Armory on Lexington Avenue, where family members of people reported missing after the attack on the World Trade Center had initially been sent to wait for information and 10 blocks north of Union Square Park. Manhattan had been blocked off below 14th Street to anyone who didn't have proof that they lived or worked downtown. Union Square had been used as a gathering place for social protest for over 100 years, and for now at least, it was as far as anyone could get downtown. The park's southernmost border on 14th Street was lined with cops checking IDs and blue police barricades. And so we collected there, like sticks jammed up along the bank where a stream narrows. Some people came to Union Square to speak out against a military response to the attacks, to sell t-shirts for profit or to benefit local firehouses, to light candles or lay flowers at the impromptu memorial that had been formed in the space between the statue of George Washington and the entrance to the subway at Union Square West. But many of us went there because we just didn't know where else to go. We felt lost. I knew friends who had medical training who had tried to volunteer at local hospitals, and many friends who lined up to donate blood. All of them eventually turned away. Some of the shirts that enterprising vendors had hurriedly printed for sale had yellow ribbons and American flags. Some had silhouettes of the Twin Towers, and a few had jingoistic phrases like, evil, we be punished. I wandered around the city after getting back into town, trying to find a library with working internet access, and saw a phone booth with graffiti reading, kill the Arabs, kill the foreigners, kill the terrorists. Someone else had already scratched out the first two statements with a ballpoint pen, and written the word racist. I tried to wipe the words away with my fingers and a little saliva, but it didn't work. I made a mental note to come back with a black sharpie to finish crossing them out. <laughs> People all over the country seemed to be convinced that we needed to go to war with someone, but most New Yorkers, at least the people I knew, didn't share that feeling. We didn't, want the, we didn't want to bomb the shit out of anyone, even if we knew who the right people to bomb would be. We just desperately wanted it not to have happened, to wake up and find that it had been a terrible dream. I had the day off on Monday the 17th, and because I didn't know what else to do, I walked the ten blocks down to Union Square past the armory, and the bottom, which had been plastered with Xerox copies of family photos. Hundreds of color and black and white flyers had been posted to the missing, although some had been changed to memorials in the last few days, as people had begun to resign themselves to the idea that their loved ones would not be coming back. I had not lost anyone, or even known anyone who lost anyone, and still I found myself openly weeping as I walked down the street. This is not actually that unusual. I'm often prone to bursting into tears. When I'm sad, when I'm angry, when I moved, when I'm hungry. <laughs> on other weeks, crying on the sidewalk in New York might get you a, hey, sweetheart, cheer up, it can't be that bad, from a not entirely well-meaning passerby. But this week, that didn't happen. People nodded and moved out of my way quietly. The first thing that really made me cry was a lamppost in the middle of Union Square Park that had been decorated with strings threaded with origami cranes made out of newspaper so many that it looked like a Christmas tree made up entirely of ornaments. 
I'm sure there are different versions of the story, but here's the version that I knew at the time. In Japan, there is a tradition that if you fold 1,000 paper cranes, your wish will come true. There was a little girl named Sadako who lived in Hiroshima after World War II. She was dying of leukemia due to radiation exposure when she decided to fold 1,000 paper cranes. Her wish was just to live, this little girl folding pieces of paper into tiny, elegant cranes in her hospital bed, hoping for a miracle in the face of devastation and violence. People heard about her story and began to send cranes to the hospital, and eventually to fold them in her memory. After her, after her death, Sadako's friends and schoolmates published a collection of letters to raise money for a memorial to her and all of the children who had died from the effects of the atomic bomb. Today, if you go to the Hiroshima Peace Memorial, you can see a statue of Sadako with a crane flying away from her uplifted hand. Since then, the cranes have been adopted as a sign of peace and healing, and each time you fold one, it's as if you're making a prayer for peace. On Monday night, I went back to Union Square on my way home. I wandered around the heaps of flowers and signs, flags, butcher paper laid out for people to write on, young women with bleached and dyed hair and ragged jeans relighting memorial candles that had gone out. In front of the tree of newspaper cranes in the center of the park, I met a young man who said he had come to Union Square on Sunday and begun folding. He and his friends had counted up to a thousand and then had lost track. He taught me how to fold the cranes and then went on to teach other people, helping me now and then when I got stuck. I wanted to keep folding and so I remembered how to do it myself. After a while, I started teaching other people and telling them the story if they wanted to hear it. I stayed for three hours folding newspaper cranes in the park. Stories about September 11th, pictures of the towers burning, help wanted ads, and real estate listings, all transformed into imperfect and often asymmetrical symbols of hope. I folded and folded and folded, and then finally stumbled back home to bed. The next day, I went back to the park after my first day of work. A young couple was sitting on the ground in front of the tree, cutting construction paper into squares and teaching people how to fold the cranes. The young man was of Arabic descent, and he helped his Japanese-American wife hand out paper and encouraged kids and teenagers to write on their brightly colored cranes before placing them beneath the tree. They didn't know the young man who had come on Sunday. They had just come with origami paper at about five, and when that had run out, had gone to Staples to buy construction paper. They apologized to people who were having trouble because the paper was too thick. The construction paper was harder to fold, but the bright color stood out among the newspaper cranes from the previous day. The young man said that he had just learned about origami after four years of marriage. After a few tries, I remembered how to fold the cranes, and then the young couple and their friends started sending people over to me. Go over there. She's a good teacher. Some people knelt, some people sat on the ground, others used fence posts and backpacks as folding surfaces, a computer printout read, Paper cranes, a symbol of peace, now a symbol of the cooperation of New Yorkers. I taught blonde kids and hippie kids, Hispanic families, guys with tattoos and Boston accents, adults with tears in their eyes, 20-something women who were sarcastic about the process, but who sat and folded anyway. The Japanese woman sitting next to me taught a large black family who wrote, God bless you, on the wings of their cranes. I taught a young gay couple in diesel t-shirts, a bald Israeli with pierced ears, a shy white man in a suit, and two young people in red polo shirts wearing badges that said something about Adventist services. I asked one of them how he was doing. It's hard, he said. It was good to come here and do some mourning. He asked if I was an art therapist. I left a little after midnight, cleaning up the scraps of paper and 
put some newspapers in a plastic bag at the foot of the tree so that there would be paper for people to fold the next day. Then I walked up Lexington to the armory on the way home. There were few political signs here. Just a couple of Christian pamphlets and the occasional request from the ASPCA to let them know of any animals whose owners were missing. The walls were simply covered with Xerox flyers of the missing, and the sidewalks were lined with lit candles. People came, but they didn't gather here. They would stop for a moment to leave a flower or relight a candle, to say a prayer, or to read someone's story, and then walk on. Union Square had become a town square for the living to come together, but this had become a chapel, a place to mourn the dead. A few days later, it started raining. I was brokenhearted until I learned that volunteers from the Museum of the City of New York had come to save as much as they could of the memorials and artwork and the detritus from prayer and protest. Somewhere in their archives, the tree of paper cranes would be preserved, a part of the museum's personal, uh, permanent collection. And for better or worse, I seem to have become a permanent part of New York. Writing to my friends and family on a borrowed internet connection on the 18th of September, I let them know that I was okay, and if they needed to find me, I would probably be in Union Square. I know two things, I wrote. One is that even if I can't do anything else, I can sit in the park and fold paper cranes for myself and for others. I may feel lost, but at least we can all feel lost together. The other is that for the first time since I moved here seven years ago, today, I feel like a New Yorker. They say breaking up is hard to do, but breaking up and then living together for another six months is even harder. Switching it up, Erica Iverson presents The Six-Month Brooklyn Queens Reclamation Project, written by Ken Crossland. The breeze has a distinctive way of blowing in from an open car window on a summer day. It flaps to the rhythm of the passing road signs, the vehicles entering and exiting your driving orbit, and today... 90s pop music, beating hard with treble that was making the speakers whine. My decade-old Honda Fit was taking potholes like a champ. The car was black, neat, and presentable, but a nightmare under the hood. If it ain't broke, don't fix it. The maxim with this car was, even if it's really broke, don't fix it. <laughs> the Brooklyn Queens Expressway sure wasn't helping. There's a certain romance attached to highways in the warmer months. They're like an always-on reminder of freedom to Americans. Have a few bucks for gas, have a little time on your hands, and while we're at it, do you have a car? Maybe you're not as stuck as you think you are. You can go anywhere. Today's route from Astoria to Bushwick, in its own way, fit that sentiment. I wasn't at the wheel. She was. Tall, strong, wearing her trademark sleeveless tank, and about to embark on the greatest unknown of her life. After this car ride, she would be handling the entirety of her mental health care by herself, losing the safety net of the man next to her, her former boyfriend of 10 years. Of course, I would also be taking on my own set of unknowns, but I wasn't thinking about that. Not right now. 
We stopped singing long enough to occasionally steal glances at each other, smiling, experiencing a joy that felt like we were borrowing from some abandoned corner of our past. It was a joy that existed before leases, before broken engagements, before adopted cats, before suicide attempts, before everything stopped for good. I didn't intend to spend six months living with my ex-girlfriend after we broke up. <laughs> this story, however, takes place in New York. If you've ever lived with a significant other in a city as expensive as this one, sharing a lease is a godsend. Until it isn't. Dividing the expense of an apartment is so financially sound that it almost completely outweighs any negatives you might encounter during a relationship. <laughs> You've cheated on me. Huh, yes, but we're only paying $8.50 each to live in the heart of Park Slope. <laughs> Carry on, then. <laughs> but the reason we stayed together a little longer was more than just money. This wasn't a breakup where everyone went part on equal footing. In her case, she had been recovering from a catastrophic breakdown that cost her nearly everything. Her job, her savings, her sanity. We agreed that she had come too far to become a ward of the state, so we made a deal to hang on until she was stable enough to live on her own. Her hands were at a lazy ten and two on the wheel, yet she was fully in control. Driving was her domain of excellence, and I always trusted her to get us where we needed to go. She could fiddle with the radio, send a text, or handle a U-Haul on a slick winter highway with the same bland indifference to the difficulty. Watching her fingers on the leather, I was reminded of the times that she had paint all over them, or burns from a misbehaving glue gun, or when they wrapped around mine when I was scared. The willingness to be in a relationship is also the ability to accept the hard truth of them. They all end. Sometimes it's because you can't date anyone in a band. <laughs> Sometimes it's because your goals are just way too different and you grow apart. Sometimes you're separated by death or the cruelty of forgetting who your loved ones are. And sometimes it's just exhaustion. You've tried and done everything to stay together, but there's simply no way to do it and remain healthy. And that was us. My mood dipped as we crossed over the Kosciuszko Bridge, <laughs> signifying the physical break from Queens to Brooklyn. I couldn't tell how it was affecting her. With the gray of the road blurring past my eyes, I was flooded with memories of 10 years. Unpacking and co-mingling our stuff in the first overpriced apartment. Fights on New Year's Eve with a champagne glass sailing into a Christmas tree. A birthday where the whole house was decorated before I woke up, dancing to a silly song, playing off an iPhone speaker in the kitchen. A silent trip in a taxi cab to a New York psych ward, the second in a year. Looking up at her now, eyes ahead, staring at the traffic, 
maybe the future. It was hard to grasp the reality that she would no longer be a constant in my life. Maybe this would be the first unknown I had to grapple with. We had made the choice to live in Brooklyn four years earlier, mainly out of desperation. It would be our third apartment in as many years. My career as a designer and a comedian had effectively stalled, and I was wasting my time living in the suburbs. I secretly wanted to taste the action of New York, but was too frightened to actually, you know, be there. <laughs> I was in my early 30s, and it seemed like a now-or-never proposition. Never seemed like a pretty long time. So, in the spring of 2010, we picked now. It was supposed to be the move that defined everything, the one that would help us figure out who we were, the prologue to whatever great things we were about to achieve. Moving to Brooklyn was both a real and symbolic gesture of breaking away from the past. We didn't know quite yet that this would also be our initial break from each other. In the years to come, a series of harder and harder questions would keep crossing our paths, each with fewer and fewer painless answers. We don't really have the money for a movie. Should we sit in Prospect Park again with some PBRs? Should I quit my job so we can start our business? When do you think we should try for kids? Do you want to get married next winter? You disassociated in the car? When? How long should we keep pretending we're still engaged? Should we discuss trying outpatient now? Maybe we can try living apart for two months and see how it goes. Do you think it's time we finally stop this? I could tell we were only a few exits away now. The sun was starting to fade a little into summer twilight, and there was an unmistakable cast of blue on the road. She looked calm, and I was a little envious. But now she was inside herself, something I was used to. What she was thinking, like a lot of what she felt, was locked in her own personal vault. I had stopped asking a long time ago. When you live with someone you break up with, a clean separation is about as easy as moving a planet with your mind. <laughs> Regardless of how over things might be, you still wake up and they're inside your house. You share the same space, the same food, the same sheets, the same Netflix queue, and the same less than glorious living habits. The difference between you and a couple that are still dating is the label. It's like you're existing in a stopped clock, or more closely, a purgatory, where you still share the occasional meal. So, as you might expect, the mechanics of living with a former partner are somewhat delicate. One pain point, what kind of social life do you get to have while living under the same roof? The idea of your ex, especially one that still lives with you, having any sort of romantic life is nauseating. As much as you want to convince yourself otherwise, neither of you is actually free. That doesn't, however, 
stop you from testing the boundaries like a newly minted teenager. She won't find out that you went on a date. Of course she will. <laughs> what about expenses? You used to go all in on your girlfriend's $100 a month facial cleansing habit. Now that you've ended things, it's convincing her that ivory soap is just as great for her complexion. You start to pay closer attention to the good cheese you just bought. If I hide it behind the broccoli, maybe she won't notice it. She always does. <laughs> How about the more intangible stuff? Like the touchstones you had while you were dating. You've had a lousy day. Do you tell them about it? Something cool happened on the way home. Do you bring it up? How much are you sharing? How much are you withholding? Is it okay to simply ignore them when you step in the door? I mean, who are you really trying to impress anymore? Answer, it's still that person. <laughs> Eventually, though, like most forced human interaction, you reach a sort of stasis. Quiet understanding. I won't talk about what I plan to do after we finally split. You won't talk about the eight million mistakes I've made over the past decade. <laughs> it's like a frosty truce. And for a while, the peace is as harrowing as a tired arm hovering over the nuclear button. Strangely, though, and perhaps this has some roots in Stockholm Syndrome, <laughs> but eventually things do thaw out. Not only thaw out, but actually get friendly. You remember the things you liked about each other. This is because another reality is about to step in. You and her, it's actually going to end. For real. For really real. As in, forever. Your most familiar human will be gone. That person you've been silently resenting every morning, that's the same person that used to tuck a love note into your work bag. They know the real you. And in fact, they may be one of the few people on the planet who actually does. They've seen you be irrationally and off-puttingly angry. They're way too familiar with your ugly cry. <laughs> They've said it's okay when you're wallowing in your own worthlessness and promised that they wouldn't judge you. They've also seen your accomplishments, the time where you got a job you desperately wanted. They helped you recover from the flu by watching all 12 hours of Lord of the Rings. <laughs> Extended, of course. <laughs> they drank with you on a boring Friday night when you didn't have the money to go anywhere. They laughed the little dance you made up for the ending credits of Gilmore Girls. <laughs> and now we're just a couple of blocks away from her new apartment, the last few moments together melting off the clock before it all becomes a memory, like a graduation or your first kiss. The car pulls into an empty spot, the engine cuts, and I'm handing her off to her new life, a life I won't get to experience. We say that we'll see each other again really soon, but we know it's not true. Relationships end. 
You get to know someone until the point when you don't. For 10 years, I had an intimate window into someone else's life. Someone let me into their weird little world, and I let them into mine. And then, I got six more months to finally appreciate it. That's it. Thanks for joining us for this installment of No, You Tell It. Visit us on the web at knowyoutellit.com.